Continuing on on the subject of messages to the ministry, in particular, we've been talking about the 12 different blemishes or defects that are found in the 21st chapter of Leviticus that are disqualifying elements for somebody being in the priesthood and how those have spiritual parallels as being disqualifying defects for somebody in the New Covenant ministry. The next one in the order that we've been going through that is a condition that would be a defect naturally under the Old Covenant, and I think spiritually under the New Covenant, is a man that is broken-handed. Physically, under the Old Covenant, that would be referring to someone that had broken hand or hands or bones in their hand that would limit them from being able to effectively grasp and hold on to different objects. You certainly have to be able to have the strength and the dexterity in your fingers to be able to hold on to objects. If you're going to do work in the house of God in the Old Testament sense, it would be a horrific thing if you were to drop some holy object or if you were involved in transporting something during the period when the tabernacle was more mobile and you lost your grip on it and it fell. There are several reasons like that and others for why someone had to have strong and flexible hands and not have damage in their hands if they're going to do the work of God in that type of an environment. Spiritually speaking, under the New Covenant, I think this represents a man whose works and his actions are damaged or defiled in some way or who is dealing with some condition that limits his ability to work or to act. Because often our hands refer to our actions. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. In Ecclesiastes 9, is talking about the actions that you're capable of doing, doing them with all the ability you have, with all the strength you have. This, by the way, is related to some of the very same issues regarding being broken, fractured, that we talked about in the last session on being broken-footed. And those two overlap a great deal in some of their meaning. But the key difference being that your foot refers to your ways, your way of walking, so to speak, and the direction it will take you. And your hand refers to your deeds, your actions, your ways of doing things, so to speak. They're both ways, and pardon the repetition, different ways. But one is more related to what causes you to go in a certain direction or to do things a certain way. And the other one is more related to the type of actions you take and the ways you do things. Because a man's actions, which are the works of his hands, are often a direct expression of his ways related to his feet and his manner of walking and directing his steps, so to speak, if you want to use a biblical phrase for it. So this can refer to either someone who is doing the wrong things with their hands or doing the wrong types of actions, or someone who's not able to do the right things with their hands. They're not able to effectively keep a hold on the things of God, maybe because they're trying to hold on to other things or because they're not strong enough to hold on to the things of God and to keep a firm grasp on their spiritual life and thoughts and words and actions, and for that matter, even their attitude. A man with a broken hand or broken hands is never going to be able to build the house of God. Or if he attempts to build the house of God, he is bound to build it in the wrong way or with some wrong or skewed elements in the structure. There are many passages in the Bible, by the way, that talk about the hand or hands. I think the word hand is used in the Bible almost 1,500 times, and the word hands in the plural is used between four and 500 times. So if you were to try to study out just the word hand or hands in the Bible to try to study what it might mean to be broken-handed and the opposite of being broken-handed, to have strong hands and capable hands, you would have to look at approximately 2,000 verses, and then there'd still be other verses you could look at, like verses about taking hold of something or grasping it that may not even use the word hand. So I am not by any means going to be going through every single verse, but I am going to use quite a few verses where hands are referred to that might tell us something. 
that might have lessons in them about having the right kind of hands, spiritually speaking, and having the wrong kind of hands in the sense of broken hands that this is talking about. Talking about building the house of God, there's several times that the hands are referred to in the work of building the house of God. And when the Jews returned from Babylon and they began the rebuilding of the work of the temple, the people, the land around them, it says in Ezra 4, 4, tried to weaken the hands of the people of Judah and to trouble them in building. And then later in Nehemiah, when it's talking about the later building up of the walls of Jerusalem, which also have connotations to the work of the church, spiritually speaking, in the 18th verse of the second chapter, it says, I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. You've got to have strong hands if you're going to do the good work of the rebuilding of the things of God. But if the hand of God is upon you, then it will help you strengthen your hands and the hands of others who are involved in that work. Nehemiah 6, 9 refers to the same kind of thing as in Ezra, but this time related to the building of the walls, says that the people all around them made us afraid, saying their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. And I want that to be the central thing that you're thinking about as we go through this. I imagine I'm going to talk about some very positive things in terms of God's strengthening of our hands and our need to have strong hands, but I'm also going to talk about the other side of that coin as well and the problem of us having broken hands or crippled hands or, unfortunately, you might even say claw-like hands where we're holding so tightly onto something we need to let go of. And we're going to look at all those facets perhaps as we go through this particular session. Man's hands, spiritually speaking, were broken the moment that he took hold of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And from that point forward, his ways and his actions were polluted by his corrupt conception of that knowledge and his corrupted compulsions that were instigated by his imperfect and incomplete understanding of that knowledge. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not in itself something evil. You realize that everything God created was good, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was something that was there in the garden. What makes it evil is when you don't have enough knowledge and you don't have enough maturity to be able to take the information related to what is evil and related to what is good and rightly divide between them and know why you'd never want to do evil and why you'd always want to do good. It isn't knowledge of good and evil that is in and of itself bad. It's an immature and undeveloped knowledge of good and evil that would cause you to choose evil. The more you truly know about good and evil, when you've come to a full maturity in terms of your knowledge of those things, the more that you will realize that you'd never want to choose evil. But I don't think Adam and Eve were at that level in their initial development. They were in a state of innocence. They didn't have the experience, thankfully, at that point, but they also didn't have the education to understand the knowledge between good and evil. And I think that would have come over time as God worked with them until the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would no longer have been something that could have been a threat to their existence because they would have known enough about good and about evil that they would have never chosen evil. There are several different ways that you can look at someone being broken-handed. It can refer to someone whose works of their hands, in other words, their actions and the resulting quality, for that matter, of what they're doing in terms of building or working on something are just not right. It can be referring to someone who is unable to hold on firmly to something they're supposed to hold on to, whether their relationship with God, some truth, whatever the case might be. Because they, spiritually speaking, have dislocated fingers or some other damage to their hands that prevents a secure grip. It can refer to someone whose hands are broken and locked in place around something, like the claw that I mentioned, that need to let go of that or leave off from doing it or believing in it because it's something that's incorrect or unnecessary. 
There are a number of examples in the Bible that could be taken spiritually for our need to have strong hands in order to take hold of what is right, in order to hold on to what is right after we've taken hold of it, in order to set things in the right place and make sure they stay there. And as well, as I said earlier, not to have your hand locked onto the wrong things, to have the dexterity and flexibility in your hand, I'm talking about in terms of your choices and your actions, that you won't hold on tightly to the wrong things or to things that don't belong. And then extensions of those things, like the proper works of the hands that God expects us to be doing, the actions and things he expects us to be doing, versus improper works of the hands. As I said, there are almost 2,000 uses of the word hand or hands in the Bible, so I'm not going to go through every example of those, but I think I'm going to kind of break them up into several different points and give you a number of scriptures related to each of those points, and as I always do, I'll just let the Lord lead me through those in terms of potentially developing some other points, but there's a few things that are on my mind ahead of time. One of them is the fact that we need to make sure we're watching God's example of how he uses his hands. I realize that sounds kind of deep and complicated, but it's not. There are some times in the Bible that God refers to his hands doing something, and we can learn something from the way God does things with his hands, especially when he's using his hands in a way that he expects us to use our hands, so to speak. He's taking actions that he expects us to emulate. Deuteronomy 32:41 it says if i wet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment i will render vengeance to mine enemies and i will reward them that hate me there's a number of those kind of statements about god taking hold on judgment taking hold on somebody with his hands in judgment or taking hold on a condition with his hands in judgment and job 38:13 says that it might take hold of the ends of the earth that the wicked might be shaken out of it Psalm 69:24 says pour out thine indignation upon them and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Judgment has to be taken in hand and it has to be held fast. And we have to follow God's example in that because if we don't judge things that should be judged and we don't hold to the judgments we've made, we can never legitimately claim we are working in divine order or as God's agents of authority as his ministry. I have seen people who I certainly believe are called of God to be in the ministry and who I certainly believe are striving to be the right kind of ministers who have a great deal of difficulty passing the type of judgments they're responsible for passing and then holding on firmly to that judgment until it's appropriate to change it. Some judgments have to be passed or injustices will occur and those can occur in a lot of different ways. People can get mistreated. Damage can be done to a church or to the body if conditions aren't judged. And then once they are judged, the only thing that changes the judgment is if the conditions change that cause the judgment, or if the person who's under judgment makes the changes necessary, that that judgment can be potentially lifted. Another example of that kind of statement is in Psalms 111.7, when it says, The works of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. Notice it's the works of his hands, talking about God, that are verity and judgment. If we're claiming to be the hand of the Lord in some symbolic sense as the present day measure of the fivefold ministry, then the work of our hands has to be a faithful extension of the work of his hands. We're only his hand as a ministry to the extent that what we're doing is done in verity and judgment because we can't claim to be the hand of God if we are not working faithfully as God's hands. By the way, in that verse, the word verity is the Hebrew word emeth, which can mean truth. And in this context and in the structure of the grammar here, it's referring to something that's trustworthy or stable. 
And the word judgment here is the word mishpat, which usually refers to some kind of judicially correct verdicts or decrees of some kind. So by extension, if we're not stable and trustworthy in our judgments, and those judgments aren't the correct verdicts based on the case and condition we're addressing, then we are not acting as the hand of God, and we probably shouldn't be advertising ourselves as such. We have to be able to make the right judgments. We can't waffle and waver indecisively or unclearly about what has to be done. And we have to be stable and trustworthy in our judgments, holding to them individually and corporately and not changing on them unless the condition changes that merited the judgment. And if we're incapable of that, then we should be reticent to make claims that we're the hand of God as a ministry or that we're acting in divine order as a minister. Because failing to meet those standards is evidence of a carnal and not divine order being present. We've got to have strong enough hands to hold on to the spiritual weaponry and the piece of spiritual armor that are our offensive power against the enemy and our defensive protection against the enemy so that we'll be able to prevail in the fight. An example of this applying to us is in the list of the armor of God in Ephesians 6. Let me just pick out the central points of that, and I want you to think about how this would apply to things that we have to be able to take up with our hands and hold on to with our hands. And if you have broken hands, how effective could you be with these different elements? It says in the 10th verse down to the 17th, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then notice these last few in particular, at least two of the three of these, it would require you to have strong hands to be able to use them. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which certainly requires you to be able to hold on tightly to the interior grip of that shield to keep it in place and to wield it in defense, wherewith you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation. And then we have another one that takes a strong grip, a strong and agile grip the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. One of your weapons of defense, the shield of faith, and principal weapon of offense, the sword of the Spirit, both require somebody with capable hands to wield them. Genesis 49, 22-26 is another example of this kind of language when it's talking about the blessing on Joseph. It says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Even by the God of thy father who shall help thee, and by the Almighty who shall bless thee with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors under the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. So Joseph's hands and arms were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. We need the same thing. We've got to have the hands of the mighty God of Jacob giving us the strength to have strong hands and arms to do the work and the actions that are necessary. That's true of each of us individually, whether we're in the ministry or not. Of course, these messages are principally intended for the ministry and those laboring towards eventually being in the ministry. And certainly those who are in the ministry are going to have to have strong and capable hands, spiritually speaking. 
I'll give you two more examples of this kind of language. Second Samuel 22, 33-35 says, God is my strength and power, and he maketh my way perfect. He maketh my feet like hind's feet, and setteth me upon my high places. There's the answer to the last issue of being broken-footed. If your feet are like hind's feet, they are not broken-footed feet. He teacheth my hands to war, so that a bow of steel is broken by mine arms. And he's going to have to teach our hands to war, spiritually speaking. Psalms 144.1 says, Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teacheth my hands to war, my fingers to fight. So we've got to have strong enough hands, spiritually speaking, to be able to take hold of and then hold on to what is right and what must never be relinquished. What we don't want to lose, what we don't want to lose hold of or lose our grip on, so to speak. Whether it's a truth, whether it's the right actions in our life, Whether it's taking up these weapons of spiritual warfare, as I was talking about, we need to have capable and strong hands. We can't be broken-handed if we're going to be able to do that. There's times that our hands, as I mentioned in the beginning, can be locked in place on something, like a claw where our hand's been broken, not in the sense that it's incapable of holding onto something, but it's been broken into a crippled claw of some kind that's holding so tight to something that we should have relinquished that we are refusing to relinquish. The most obvious things we can be holding on to with a claw-like grip that we don't want to let go of are carnal things, evil things that we just don't want to give up. But those aren't the only things we can be holding on to. We can be holding on to our beliefs that we think are true that are not true. We can be holding on to practices or standards that we think are necessary or we think are required of God that simply are not. And that can be, when you really consider its progressive repercussions, sometimes this is damaging as holding on to evil things. We have to have strong enough hands, spiritually speaking. Again, I'm talking about control over our actions and control over our hold on things that will help us to keep from losing the things that shouldn't be lost or taking actions that should not be taken. But as I said a moment ago, there's also unbiblical ideas and practices that are not what we should be protecting and holding on so tightly and so vehemently and so emotionally. And sometimes even with serious stretches of political and psychological manipulation that we're using that look far more like the works of the world and a beastly method of protecting political agendas and control mechanisms than what we should ever see in the church. And sadly, many of those kind of control mechanisms that we hold on to because we don't want to lose control or we don't want to lose power over the people. And remember, the subject of these classes is the ministry are little more than expressions of human opinions and preferences of men and not God's intent. Some of the arguments that I have heard defending unbiblical beliefs, practices, or standards are almost as insensible as if a minister who didn't personally like red hair claimed that you have to change your natural hair color if it is red to some other color as a requirement of being in their church or on their platform in their church or even just as a requirement of being in an acceptable state with them in general. I'll tell you what, let me use that example because that might be a very simple example of one of the problems of starting with the wrong methods to come up with some of our beliefs, practices, or in this case, talking about something that someone might use as a standard. A minister who really doesn't like red hair or just thinks there's something sinful about it because of his own conception or maybe because of some tradition he's been taught might say, red after all, at least sometimes, is a color that signifies negative things in the Bible like sin and shed blood, or even the great red dragon. And then they might accelerate that into studying out every example of something read in the Bible that's negative, often, by the way, conveniently overlooking the positive uses of that very same color, 
including things like the red cord of redemption that was a sign of deliverance for Rahab and her family, or the use of that color in the innermost embroidery of the curtains of the tabernacle and temple, and other places where it is used in a very positive way. Because they don't like the color, and they only want to reinforce its negative connotations. But again, using this same example, since this certain minister doesn't like the color red, and they really don't like red hair, they think its color is maybe too flamboyantly bright in some shades, at least for their taste. And he can also find tenuous connections, like I just mentioned in the Bible, to negative things that are red. He then takes the very serious misstep of creating his own personal standard that requires people with red hair to change their hair color. And then he goes further and claims he has the divine right to do that since he is supposedly, and hopefully, a divinely called minister after all. And then others pick up that unbiblical mandate that he has made for himself that is nothing but a man-made idea a man-made preference, and they make it a corporate mandate for a group of churches, and suddenly we have a completely unbiblical canon law that is compulsory for those that are in that group. But it's not based on anything biblical, and many times the only thing you could say about it that you don't like is not something that would be a biblical argument, it's just your own personal preferential arguments, which have no meaning in terms of biblical ministerial leadership. We don't get to pick and choose our preferences for how the church operates or what standards we have in the church. We have to go by what the Bible teaches. But somebody that would do that, and I'm using a facetious example, I realize, of red hair, but there's other examples people could use, some of which would be very controversial among us, and I'm not attempting to be controversial in bringing this up. I'm just attempting to drive home the point that we need to be biblical in how we establish things, and then we don't need to just get worked up emotionally and defending why we established it. But those who do such things often don't recognize or they conveniently forget several things that they should have thought of to begin with before they established a mandate like that. If we're going to use the forbidding of red hair, which I can't imagine anyone is doing, by the way, that's why I say it's facetious. Not only is the color red used in positive context in the Bible, it's also a hair color that was apparently, at least potentially, part of the genetic code of human beings that God initially created them with the capacity to have which means it was likely God's own intent to have some people with red hair. But most importantly, it is never forbidden as a hair color in the Bible. And thus, we would have no business forbidding it, whether we just don't like red hair, whether we want to argue that some people's red hair is so bright that it's flamboyant, which is your opinion, I suppose, or some other stretch of trying to find biblical support by saying that there's things in the Bible that are red that are just signs of sin or wickedness. By the way, I'm not taking a side on any particular idea, any specific operation, or any specific standard that we might have done the same thing with in our history. I am just pointing out why we have to be more careful than to create our own canon law requirements that are based on extra-biblical ideas and then often driven by personal preferences. And those personal preferences get dug in even deeper the longer you associate it with your identity. Meaning, if we forbid red hair a hundred years ago, and nobody has worn red hair all this time, then the first time you see somebody with red hair in your church, you'll be shocked by it. And you might even go so far as to say that it'll cause all kinds of sin to break out, because, God forbid, we just don't have red hair among us, and now somebody's got red hair. I want you to think through the implications of those kind of claims and understand why I'm making these points, why we have to be careful not to get our hands so locked on something, so locked around something that we shouldn't be holding on so tightly to, that maybe we were never intended to grab hold of to begin with, that we effectively become a broken-handed ministry with a claw-like grip on things that we should have been holding with a very loose hand from the very beginning. 
So we have to be more careful than to create our own canon law requirements. It's one thing to call something a canon law custom, because then you might just say it's just the way we do things. But the problem is with canon law customs, whatever they may be applicable to, if they're not based on something biblical and they're just driven by personal preferences, eventually canon law customs will always become requirements because this is how we do things. So if you want to be a part of us, you'll have to match this. And we have no business making any such statements unless we have a Bible to back them up because we are not, as I have said, I don't know how many times through these classes, trying to build a brand new body, unlike anything that's ever existed before with brand new rules and regulations and requirements. We are trying to restore a body that already existed, the body of Christ as it existed in the biblical period. Again, not creating some brand new type of order and operation and standards that would have been completely foreign to that body. On that note, let me take just a short sidetrack and add something that's an extension of something that I just said, maybe a little more obtusely than necessary. If it was part of God's original creation to have the range of hair colors that include red hair, and that hair color expresses something God desires for some people to have, we should be careful to forbid it. And the same could be true of other things. If God created men and women, and I'm going to say this very gently and I'm going to say it very generally, but if God created men and women with certain physical qualities of appearance, and those qualities are expressive of his desire for variation, And even more importantly, if they aid in gender distinction in that they help to clearly communicate whether someone's a male or a female, I think we should be especially careful to create any customs or canon laws that would forbid any of those things and thus effectively undermine that purpose. Let me preface what I'm going to say next with something so that nobody would take offense by anything I'm about to say. I have been going through a battery of surgeries and procedures the last few months. Just a week ago today, I had a very serious surgery that I pray is the last surgery I'll have to face related to this cancer, and I'm still in recovery from that surgery. And during this period, we have had several meetings and other things that I have not been able to attend, and I am sorry I haven't been able to attend them. I've missed the brethren and certainly love the brethren, but I just physically have not been capable. I'm still not really physically capable of being out in church just yet. I'm hoping to be able to get back out in the next couple of weeks and then maybe in a few months have my strength build up and my immune system build up so I can start coming to meetings again, perhaps by the spring, if not sooner, if the Lord will allow. But I have not been able to be in some of the meetings. So some of the questions that I've been getting are on some of the issues that almost certainly are being discussed in the meetings. During this time, because of the nature of my recovery and the surgeries and constantly traveling to doctor's offices and to the hospital for procedures and things, I have not been able to sit in on these meetings when they're occurring, even when I could watch them potentially by a live stream. So there are times when someone may ask me a question and they may say, I heard a minister bring up a certain verse or a scripture. And what is your take on this verse or scripture that I may not know all the background of what they brought up on it. I may not understand why they brought it up. I may not even understand who brought it up. And I am going to touch on one of those scriptures here that I've had several people ask me questions about that I don't know all the background of why the scripture was necessarily brought up or all the context or even exactly who all may have been discussing the scripture. So please, I pray no one will take offense to anything I might say in the next few minutes about a scripture I was asked about that I may contradict whatever ministers may have brought up this scripture in my understanding of it. It is not my intent to offend them. I love the brethren, and I believe our brethren as a whole, as a vast majority certainly, have the right motives at heart that they want what is right, and they want the people of God to be safe and secure and settled. But the only way for us to truly be safe and secure and settled is if we're settled on the Word of God. 
We can't be settled just based on what a man might say. Because I may say something that I have a strong conviction about that is not based on the Word of God that I do not want people basing their life on. You've got to base your life and the requirements of your relationship with the Lord on something stronger than my preferences and my opinions. And I would hope that any, if not most of our ministers, would say the same. That we're not trying to establish things based on our preferences or our opinions. We're trying to find a biblical basis for them. And I'd imagine whatever brethren have brought up some of these scriptures I'm getting questions on, we're doing that very thing. I believe they were seeking to look for a biblical basis for some of the beliefs that they have. But I've got questions about something that's a similar issue to what I just brought up about red hair. It's related to certain dress standards. I'm not taking a side on, by the way, in terms of trying to build up or tear down anybody's teaching on this standard. But I did receive a question about Joseph being shaved when he was brought out of the prison before he was presented to Pharaoh and whether or not that applies to any dress standards in terms of shaving or not shaving or however someone might apply that. And I think addressing it for a few minutes will help to drive home the need for us to be as biblical and as comprehensive in our study as we can so we don't make missteps in establishing beliefs or practices or standards that are not necessarily biblically supported and in not holding on with a tight grip to things that are actually not biblical. When Joseph was brought out of the prison, he was required to shave before being presented to Pharaoh. It may have been his personal preference to do so, but it certainly would have been a requirement that he do so. And that's for a very simple reason. The pagan Egyptian men normally shaved. One of the main reasons they did so, by the way, is the high prevalence of lice at that time in that part of the world. And the courtiers of Pharaoh certainly would have wanted Joseph to be as presentable by their standards as possible when he went before Pharaoh. But there's several things we might miss in that description if we're trying to use that as a reason for a dress standard. First of all, there was no such standard of shaving among God's people. If Joseph wanted to do this, then it was probably a when in Rome, do as the Romans do type of thing that he didn't want to offend Pharaoh. And that as an Israelite, he would never have done later to prepare to go before one of their own kings. So this is obviously a pagan standard of presentation, not a Hebrew standard. So at most, you might argue if Joseph wanted to do this, he was going to do it so as not to cause offense to a pagan king. Second, the Hebrew language of this passage can refer to shaving off someone's beard entirely or to just trimming the beard. All it is essentially saying is he cut his beard. It doesn't tell you how close he cut it. So it could also mean that he was just trimming his beard down so it wouldn't be so full or to shape it if it's gotten unruly looking, which very likely would have been the case after some time in prison. So we can't be completely certain which was being referred to. Though I don't have any problem with the idea being that his beard was fully shaved off for the previous reason, so as not to offend Pharaoh, but only when you consider the next point, and that's the third issue, and that is this shaving was not only a shaving or trimming of the beard, it was a shaving of the head. The Egyptian men, especially the elite, and Pharaoh himself, shaved their heads and beards not just their beards. That's why you sometimes see these pharaohs, these elaborate headdresses and what amounts to what we would think of as like wigs. But underneath that, their head was shaved. Again, many times because of lice, but sometimes because it was literally the cultural preference of that pagan nation. That means if this was a full shaving of Joseph's beard rather than just a trim, you know, it would have not just been a shaving of his beard, his facial hair, it would have been a shaving of his head. So if we're going to use that passage to argue for or against any type of standards of appearance, we need to consider all three of those points. 
And if we affirm that the type of shaving that's noted there is referring to shaving off all of someone's facial hair, and we think that's appropriate, there's just as much reason to argue that we would then need to include our head hair. And if so, I imagine that would in many cases be more biblical in its purpose than just facial hair removal. You realize I'm being facetious. I'm not asking for people to shave their heads. But it might be more biblical because it would certainly be more humbling and pride deflating for somebody to lose their thick head of hair that they might have and possibly might even, I'm still being facetious, level the playing field in terms of good looks if all of us equally had shaved heads. No one would be able to take pride in their thick mane, and I don't mean down their back, I just mean a thick head of hair, or to feel shame if they do feel shame in their receding hairline or bald head if everyone shaved their head. So if we're looking for standards based on skimpy biblical support, I suppose, as I've lost some hair since going in the ministry almost 20 years ago, that I could live with a full shave for all of us like Joseph received. Again, I'm being facetious, and I'm trying to say this as gently as I can. And I imagine more than any other head or facial hair standards that different folks have held, the removal of all head hair could be based on a biblical precedent after all, since it would in most cases restrain some pride. Think how much time people... I include men in this because I'm talking about men, not women doing this. Spend primping at their hair if they've got a nice head of hair. Spend putting hair gel in there or mousse or whatever it is they're doing. And spend endless amounts of time that they might criticize the ladies for, but some men are just as bad in front of the mirror. Some cases getting their fade just right, or in some cases pumping up their hair to look real nice. But it would, in most cases, if everyone shaved their heads, restrain pride and maybe even deflate some egos that are stoked by their beautiful heads of hair. Jeremiah 48, 37 says, Every head shall be bald and every beard clipped. But notice the last half of the verse. Upon all the hands shall be cuttings and upon the loins sackcloth. Talking about a state of mourning. In the Bible, you'd shave your head bald and you'd clip your beard down close if you were expressing that you were in a state of something negative going on. You're in a state of mourning. Now, I want to stress again, I am making no case for beards or lack of beards or anything else in this session. I am simply trying to make a point because I had some questions and it sounds like that issue was discussed at the last minister's meeting, which again, I don't know all who discussed it. I don't know who all might have brought up different points. Please forgive me if you brought up some point that I just contradicted. I'm certainly not trying to cause any offense or to create any conflict. I am simply using this as an example of why we have to be so biblically careful and so biblically thorough before we attach ourselves so firmly to certain things that we can't pull the claw hand off of it because that's how it's always been done or that's how so-and-so held it. And I'm going to hold on tight and double down on whatever it is that I'm holding on to. There's a lot more things we need to be concerned about than just dress standards. There are doctrinal beliefs people hold on to that way that are simply false. They just got past those things down and there's not enough biblical support for them to even vaguely come up with such ideas. Or there are practices that are done in churches that are simply not biblical. You just go through the Bible, see if you can find anyone doing anything like it, and you'll find out they're not biblical. They may be something that would happen in a unique case, but they aren't some we should hold on to with the claw hand and say, this is part of our identity. The only thing we hold on to as part of our identity are things that are biblically defined identity, not man-made or tradition-driven elements of identity, unless that tradition is biblical tradition. So listen, brethren, I'm speaking to the brethren I work with here and in other nations, because these classes are principally to those brethren. I do not intend them as a pulpit to speak into meetings that I am not able to physically be in. 
I just get feedback from meetings that I'm not able to be in, that I haven't been able to follow as closely, that do require me responding to that feedback to the brethren that I work with and those that are overseas in this kind of a format. Listen, brethren, we have ministers among us who hold differing views on standards of this kind, and it's not my intent to clash or conflict with others or to denigrate what they might believe to be a conviction on some issue. But we do need to consider the logic and the interpretational methods we're using to reach our conclusions, and then we need to determine whether our claims are biblical in nature. That said, I truly appreciate those who hold differing beliefs on issues of this kind, especially when I see them seeking for biblical support for their position, because if you don't have biblical support for it, you probably shouldn't be holding it. And I think looking for biblical support on our positions is paramount and necessary for any position we're going to hold in terms of beliefs, practices, or standards. And I pray we always have biblical support for what we believe and what we require. But our protection and our promotion of man-made traditions and additions can go to the point of being ludicrous if we're not careful, where we hold on tight as could be, emotionally and almost angrily at times, stretching for any kind of possible evidence or argument to resist any unclenching of our hand on that thing that we're holding on to, no matter how faulty or potentially misplaced to claim the Bible supports our ideas. And if we're not careful, another thing we'll do is apply the slippery slope fallacy, which is essentially if you do this, it'll lead to this, it'll lead to this, it'll lead to this. That is not always true. Let me use an example. I'm going to use letters, so it might be easier to follow in the printed word, so to speak. I hope you can follow it in this kind of a format. But I'm intentionally going to start with the letter B, and I'll explain why that is true in a moment. We could make the argument that if we change on B, it'll lead to C. And then that'll lead to D and so on, going downward in the wrong direction. Notice I didn't say if we change on A, it'll lead to B. Because if what we're holding on to is not the original intent of God, it isn't what the Bible really teaches. That means it's our own addition. It's not A, it's B. It's already something that isn't the original. And that means that if A, if you're still following me, is God's unadulterated intent, his unadulterated requirements, and B is our adulterated idea, our adulterated practice, our adulterated tradition or custom that isn't his original intent or requirement, then continuing in B will lead to something negative because B will lead to C and then on to D and so on in a way that we may not be considering. Not that if you give up something that isn't necessary, it'll obviously lead to people doing more carnal things. But if you don't give it up, it may lead to something negative as well. I'll explain in just a moment. But if we leave behind B, that's our addition, it may help us to go back to A, which is a much stronger position to hold when it's a biblical position, and thus won't take us down a slippery slope. It'll take us higher up the mountain we're climbing. Some might say that some tradition created belief or practice or standard or whatever mechanism someone might use in a church isn't necessarily harmful, and they might even claim that you can find some practical benefit in it. But there is a far greater danger that I don't think many people have considered and a much slipperier spiritual slope in continuing in unbiblical traditions, practices, or standards that we have, forgive me, deceive the people into believing are necessary to believe or do, or deceived ourselves into thinking are necessary to believe or do than in any perceived practical benefit that they might bring if they're not biblical requirements. Because it'll lead the people to believe, whether consciously or unconsciously, that it's acceptable to come up with our own unbiblical, and sometimes even entirely counter-biblical, beliefs, practices, and standards that aren't based on the Bible, but are just our own creation. 
which means we'll train the people to take our words, when if they're not biblically based, they're only human words after all, and certainly not divine utterance, as being equal in divine authority to the Bible when they are not. And that is a devastating adulteration of spiritual authority. So the slippery slope I am worried about, if we have additions that we've added in some of our beliefs or practices or standards, that you might say, well, it's not going to hurt anything if we tell the people they have to do that or they have to believe that, is that if the people are smart enough and don't we want them to be and educated enough in the scripture and don't we want them to be, are we just trying to create people that will always be under our control or are we trying to create full-grown adults? We want people to be educated in the Scripture. We want people to have the skill to be able to search the Scripture for themselves. And if they do, they're eventually going to find out, well, this isn't in the Scripture. And then when your argument is, it's our tradition, and there's nothing wrong with tradition. No, there's nothing wrong with tradition if it's biblical tradition, if it's a tradition that came from the early church. But there's a great deal of danger in any other traditions because they are precisely what produced the Babylonish church, is coming up with its own unbiblical and extra-biblical traditions coming up with those kind of traditions and then claiming that we have the authority to do so and to ask them of the people that they have to believe that or do it, when we obviously know they're not something in the Scripture, we'll train the people, if they go along with it, to believe that our words are equally authoritative with the Scripture. If we demand something of them, we don't have to have a biblical reason for it. And that is a dangerous path to abuse. And I think we have to be very careful not to follow that path. So the purposely panicked and intentionally fear-inducing, if we let go of B, which by the way, God never told us to hold on to to begin with, is why I'm using the letter B instead of A, we're going to slide down a slippery slope to losing all kinds of things he does want us to hold on to, is most of the time a false claim, and it's dangerous as well when you fully consider it, because if God never intended you to hold on to B to begin with, you're eventually going to have to let go of it. And the longer you hold on to it, the harder it's going to be, and the more might get potentially damaged around it when it's finally, rightfully rooted out. So rather than for us to dig our heels in on things that we need to change on in terms of our teaching or our practices or standards or whatever it might be, we need to root out things that don't belong as quickly as we can so that they don't grow into what has sometimes become traditions that we then have to defend that are indefensible, at least biblically speaking. So the fact is, if we're holding on to things that we don't need to be holding on to, and we're teaching the people they have to do the same thing, and that they have to hold on to those things, despite no evidence of God ever requiring such things of them, we'll not only teach them to follow man's traditions as being equal to God's divine word, God forbid, we might actually slide down the slippery slope that some people misuse as a psychological manipulation to keep the status quo when the status quo isn't spiritual, it's carnal. Because we'll keep adding our own additions in terms of extra-biblical or counter-biblical beliefs or practices or standards until what we end up with is not only further from restoration than we started, it'll become unrecognizable as a reflection of the body of Christ that's seen in the Scripture. And that is the body of Christ we're trying to build, not a new version. So, in adding our own additions, whether we call them traditions, customs, or some other politically correct term to avoid the fact that they are just man-made additions— We'll guarantee the very slippery slope that some are afraid of. We'll add C, D, E, and F to B when the only thing God asked us to do was A, and we'll move further and further away from the unadulterated and pure image of the reflection of the body of Christ that we're trying to restore. That is the danger of tradition, when it is not a biblical tradition. In other words, a tradition based on what's in the Bible. The danger is that tradition will swallow up or eclipse the truth. 
whether by replacing the biblical truth with man's traditions, which certainly happened in the falling away of the church, or by deluding the people into believing that we as ministers have the right to create traditions and customs and canon laws that are nowhere attested to in the Bible or intended by God, that we then claim are equal in authority as requirements to his word which is another thing that the Babylonish church did as it slipped down the slippery slope of the falling away of the church. And we cannot follow that path or we will follow them down that slippery slope. So we can bind our own hands in some ways. And you could study all the different scriptures in the Bible talking about people's hands being bound or chained. We can do that in some ways by our own traditions. We can do it some ways by our own sins. And sometimes when these kind of faulty beliefs or practices or standards that are taught by us and required by us of the people as leaders are questioned, we claim that anyone questioning them are weakening the work of God, undermining its strength and stability, and potentially creating a slippery slope, as I just referred to. Though I do not believe anyone would intentionally say such a thing in a deceitful way, certainly not among us, that is a deception of the devil. If calling out perverse, polluted, or simply unbiblical ideas, practices, and standards are done by individuals standing for what the Bible truly says and for what God genuinely intends and actually requires, then they are an exact opposite of attempting to weaken the Word of God or undermining anything. Jeremiah is a perfect example of someone who faced those kind of issues. And at one point in his ministry, the rulers of Judah went to the king and tried to destroy Jeremiah. They asked for him to be put to death. Just like some people try to kill other people's influence that they don't appreciate because it's challenging some of their false ideas and ideologies and practices. In Jeremiah 38, 4, the princes said unto the king, We beseech thee, let this man be put to death. For thus he weakeneth the hands of the men of war that remain in this city and the hands of all the people in speaking such words unto them. For this man seeketh not the welfare of this people, but the hurt. I have heard men questioning certain things that have been believed or certain things that have been practiced. And I hope nobody, when some of these men, and I've heard a number of them, are bringing up some of these challenges to some long-held beliefs or long-held traditions. I hope when they're doing so, nobody is trying to call for their death or call for killing their influence or anything else because they're doing so or claiming falsely that their questioning of unbiblical beliefs and unbiblical traditions would weaken the body of Christ or weaken the people of God, because that is simply not the case. If you're looking at Jeremiah's situation, God is preparing to judge Judah for not following his will in several different areas, but that doesn't mean they weren't still going to be his people or that he wouldn't restore them back after the 70-year period of captivity. But it did mean they were not as big as they thought they were. They weren't as strong as they thought they were. They weren't as unconquerable as they thought they were, and they needed to change some things that God called Jeremiah to call them to change. And the last thing they should have been doing, which is exactly what they were doing, is trying to hold endless pep rallies about how powerful we are and about how we can't be conquered and about how we're fine as we are and there's no need for change, which is precisely what Jeremiah was called to preach against. In Jeremiah's day, it was the work of false prophets to preach peace and safety and the security of the status quo when the status quo was not the perfect ideal at that time. And as I said, to hold endless pep rallies and bragging sessions about how they were the people of God and they couldn't fail no matter how much of a mess they might have been. That sadly was the case in Jeremiah's day. They were doing that very thing. And I pray to God we never find ourselves as a body of people or as local churches in a similar situation in our day. 
where there are things that need to be changed, but we have such a crippling claw grip on certain traditional beliefs and certain traditional practices and standards that rather than to answer the problems with some of those beliefs and practices, we accuse the individuals calling our attention to them as trying to hurt the church. It was a false accusation by those princes to claim that Jeremiah should be killed because he was weakening the hands of the warriors of Judah and of the people, and that he wasn't seeking their good, their welfare, by telling them the truth about their condition. It's because Jeremiah loved Judah and because he loved Jerusalem so much that he was forced, sometimes against his own will, to call them out for their misconceptions and corrupted ideas and practices. He loved them and he was seeking their welfare in doing so. You can see in that 20th chapter of Jeremiah from around the 7th to 11th verse how torn Jeremiah was about preaching the Word of God in that famous statement where it talks about how the Word of God was in his heart like a burning fire shut up in his bones. And he was weary with forbearing and could not stay. He was trying, if you read the whole context, to resist preaching the Word of God, to resist speaking out against these things because he knew that it would bring persecution. He knew that it would bring political machinations against him. He knew that it would bring individuals talking behind his back or saying things to try to kill his influence or to try to undermine the weight of his words. But if it's a fire that God sets in our bones, brethren, if God ignited it there, and if it's allowed to burn as it should, it will kindle in other hearts that are seeking the truth and seeking to serve God in verity and truth. And it'll be the change agent that's needed to burn up the dross and that will do the demolition work of breaking up any carnal constructions among God's people. Jeremiah 23, 29, the Lord said, Is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that breaketh a rock in pieces? There are some ancient stones that have laid in the field for a long time that people point to and say, that's where my property line's at. That's part of my identity. They might even be so unfortunate if they're not biblical to call them ancient landmarks at times, when the only true ancient landmarks are the landmarks laid down in the scripture. And some of those rocks have to be broken in pieces because they are not laying on the true spiritual property lines. In fact, in some cases, they are creating a smaller spiritual piece of property by their placement than what God actually intends for his people. Let's come back to the core subject at hand, though, and I guess maybe that's pun intended about being broken-handed. And on the portion of that issue that I've been addressing, of having a claw-like but maybe broken-handed grasp on the wrong things, whether by refusing to let go of the wrong things or by taking hold of the wrong things to begin with. Isaiah 4.1 is an example of that, where it says, In that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name to take away our approach. Notice that they're taking hold of this man. They're putting their hands on him and grabbing hold of him and grasping and clinging to him. There's two possible ways you might look at the spiritual meaning of this statement, one of which is the most traditional way we've seen it. Another way that could also be its meaning, but if nothing else, has a good practical lesson in it. The first way is that this is in its spiritual fulfillment, talking about churches taking hold of the leader of the most influential false church, the man of sin and desiring him to allow them to be under his spiritual covering while they continue to hold on to their particular differences. In other words, I want to still keep believing some of the things I've believed as a Lutheran, but I'm willing to come in under the covering of your larger church, maybe for protection in numbers or some other faulty motivation. Another way of looking at this, though, is that this could also represent, even if you're only looking at it as a practical lesson of this, 
Churches attempting to take hold of Jesus and expecting to be under his covering despite their differences with one another and their divisions on doctrine or order and other things. In either case, it will not work. We certainly can't come under the man of sin and think we're going to be able to continue in the particulars of our true beliefs and practices under a carnal covering. But worse, if this is the meaning or if it's just a practical lesson that could be garnered from this kind of statement, we cannot think we are going to be able to hold on to Christ and be under his covering if we continue to be a divided people who cannot agree on doctrine and order, with each camp eating its own bread, that's its own doctrine, having different doctrines, and wearing its own different apparel, having different order and operations, and then still claiming to be called by his name as being the body of Christ. That is not going to work. God may wink at that for a while, but there's going to come a time at which we are going to either have to be unified in those things, or we are going to be no better than those churches taking hold of that one man, claiming we can continue eating our own bread, teaching whatever doctrines we might believe that are different from other people in his body, and wearing our own apparel, using our own means and methods, our own order and operations that are different from others in his body, and then all claiming to be under Christ's covering. Christ is going to have a unified body, one church, not many different churches who just use the label of the body or the label of being the church, but a church that is truly the church, the body, singular. Moving on with this subject, spiritually broken hands will inevitably end up creating the work of man's hands because they can't properly build the work of God's hands. And if we're not careful, we'll build the work of men's hands and then make idols out of the things we've built, and worse yet, claim they're divinely intended. Deuteronomy 4, 27-28 says that if the people of God did such things, the Lord would scatter you among the nations, and you shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you, and there you shall serve gods, the work of men's hands, wooden stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. This may be a major leap to get from there to what I'm about to use as an application. But if we are adding our own additions to the Word of God, there's nothing alive about them. They are carnal. They are dead. The only things that are alive are those things that come out of the living Word of God. Isaiah 2.8 talks about their land being full of idols and them worshiping the work of their own hands, which their own fingers have made. Jeremiah 1.6 talks about God uttering his judgments against them, touching all their wickedness because they've forsaken him. They've burned incense to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. We better not worship the works of our own hands, things we have created, things that are our own imagined up ideas or our own man-made practices and standards. I can give many more verses, but I'm just going to give a handful of others. Jeremiah 10-4 talks about that. When the Lord warns him not to learn the way of the heathen or be dismayed at the signs of the heaven, he says the customs of the people are vain. Man-made customs are vain. One person cuts a tree out of the forest, he says, and it's just the work of the hands of the workmen, and they deck it with silver and gold, and they fasten it with nails and hammers that it moves not. We try to sometimes fasten things with nails and hammers. The problem is we can't find any nails in the Word of God, and the hammer we're using isn't the Word of God, so we have to be fastening it with man-made nails and hammers. It looks real pretty when we're done, though, but we cut it out of the forest. God didn't. It was the work of our hands that formed it and shaped it, and our axes, not God. And then we decked it with silver and gold to make it look beautiful, make it look like it is something that is godly and good. And in order to make sure nobody moves it, because, you know, there's certain beliefs that we don't want moved. There's certain practices and standards. You better not move. You better not move that. 
That's an ancient landmark. There's nothing ancient about it if it doesn't go back to the Bible. That is the only source of ancient landmarks. But we fasten it tight with nails and hammers. And as I said a moment ago, those nails won't be biblical nails of truth, like the nails fastened by masters of assemblies in Ecclesiastes 12.11. And the hammer we're using to fasten those nails to try to lock our beliefs or our traditions into place is not the hammer of the Word of God. And if we build with a hammer that's not the hammer of the Word of God, and we build with nails that are not scriptural truths, We are building an idol, no matter how pretty it may look, or how much we might argue for its practical use. Jeremiah 25, 7, the Lord says, Haven't you hearkened unto me? And he says they provoked him to anger with the works of their own hands to their own hurt. It's not just false gods that can become idols to us. We can make idols out of our own beliefs, out of our practices, and out of our standards, if they're man-made, if they're the work of men's hands. And we can so idolize them that we won't let anyone take away our object of worship, no matter how clearly it proves to be nothing more than a carnal idol and a man-made tradition. Deuteronomy 38, 28-29, he says, Gather unto me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to record against them. For I know that after my death you will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord, notice this, to provoke him to anger through the works of your hands. Again, we're talking about ministers who are broken-handed, or those who are broken-handed trying to be in the ministry, and why that is not permitted. This was a message to the leaders among Israel. God help us as new covenant leaders not to provoke God to anger by the works of our hands, Coming up with our own ideas, our own teachings, our own practices, our own standards of operation or whatever that are not his works. If we add to his word or if we subtract from it, what we'll end up with is not his word. We'll end up with an adulterated version of it. And if we ask more of God's people or less than what God's asked of them, we will provoke him to anger. God doesn't intend his shepherds to take away from his word to make it easier than he intended. And he doesn't intend them to add to it to make it harder either. We have got to reject and cease from worshiping any unbiblical idols. And we've got a lot more idols that we worship in this modern day than just statues that someone might pray to. We make idols out of ideas. We make idols out of cultural practices. We make idols out of practices in the church house that are found nowhere in the Bible. We make idols out of the type of order that we use at times, which sometimes not only not only found in the Bible, it's an abusive method of order, which is counter to what's found in the Bible. We make idols out of some of the control mechanisms that we use as requirements of being in right relationship with us as ministers or being in right relationship with the church that we are attempting to control when those control mechanisms are not biblical or in no way find their source in God. They are carnal control mechanisms. And God help us not to make idols out of such things. What we are building is not intended to be the work of man's hands. And it's not to be built according to our pattern, our preferences, or our traditionally prejudiced practices or man-made precepts. Daniel 2.34 speaks of a stone that was cut out without hands that smote that great image and broke it to pieces. That stone, intended to strike the feet of that image in our day, will break against the image if it's made up of a mixture of the same mess the image is created of, gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay blended in. It has to be made of a pure and more durable material. 
taken from the word of God and not from man's miry means and methods or some man-made customs and canon laws that we've added to the word of God to compact that stone together or we'll be introducing clay into the constitution of that stone and making it impure and incapable of having the strength to strike the feet of that image and to break it to pieces. It's not our hands that are building this house, though we might be instruments that God uses and vessels that he uses. It's the hands of God. In a deep typological picture in Zechariah 4.9, talking about the restoration of the temple in Israel, and in a deeper picture, talking about the restoration of the church by God, it says, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this house. His hands also shall finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. God in heaven help us to make sure that anything we're touching with our hands is God reaching through us and not us creating our own man-made structures and man-made mechanisms and means and methods that are not coming from the holy God of heaven. If we do that, if we keep our hands unbroken, we keep our hands clean, God will bless our labors and he'll end up putting more in our hands in terms of giving us more responsibility. Genesis 39, 1-6 describes Joseph being taken to Egypt. says, Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass in the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord is upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he knew not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. Later in that chapter, it says the same thing about him in the prison. When in the 21st, 23rd verse says, The Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Very simply put, Joseph proved through his actions that what you gave him responsibility for would prosper. And as Joseph was faithful in that, he was given greater responsibility. 2 Samuel twenty two twenty one. David speaking, says, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands hath he recompensed me. We've got to keep our hands clean, brethren. That's what it means for them to be unbroken. A broken-handed individual is a person with unclean hands, unclean methods, unclean means, unclean actions. Job 17, 19 says, The righteous also shall hold on his way, and he that hath clean hands shall be stronger and stronger. You'll be able to hold on through the process of the way God is going to take you through to perfect you if you keep your hands clean. And God will continue to increase the strength of your hands so you can continue to be stronger and stronger. Psalms 18, 20 to 24 says, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, hath he recompensed me. It's a repetition of 2 Samuel 22, 21. I was just repeating, but I want to read this one for a little more detail. He said, I've kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. That's part of what it means to keep your hands clean. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also upright before him, and I kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore, if the Lord recompense me according to my righteousness, 
according to the cleanness of my hands and his eyesight. Psalms 24, 3-5 says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. We've got to have clean hands, brethren, and a pure heart if we're expecting to have spiritual success. I've seen people have great material success. I've seen people inherit or build great large churches with many people, but they just had a great position of influence who sometimes were not men with clean hands and a pure heart. And those material things were not a true measure of their ministry. If a man's increasing in his power and influence, including ministers increasing in those areas or in the increase of their assembly, as an assembly gets larger or as they have material successes or they're increasing in their influence in the churches that they're a part of, but that man doesn't have clean and unbroken hands, then it's very likely that it's not God who's promoting him and increasing him. Jeremiah 23, 14 said, I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers, that none doth return from his wickedness. They are all of them unto me as Sodom, and the inhabitants thereof is Gomorrah. God in heaven forbid that we never become like that, where we ourselves would be committing some moral impurity or walking in lies, deceiving the people. And God forbid that we as a ministry wouldn't strengthen the hands of evildoers, which can be done in a lot of different ways. You can let someone keep on doing their evil, claiming you're showing charity to them when you're not showing charity to anyone by letting someone continue to do evil. Because if you don't stop the evildoer, they're eventually going to be judged for it. That's not love. And if you don't stop the evildoer, they're eventually going to damage other people with their evil. And that's not love for the people. We want them to return from their wickedness. That is love. The desire for them to return from their wickedness is charity, not a tolerance for their wickedness. And we can't strengthen the hands of evildoers in the sense of supporting or promoting them, pushing people up in the estimation of the church or pushing them up in the estimation of the church's plural when they are, whether we want to admit it or not, in their practices, in their beliefs, in their spirit, or God forbid, even in their open and direct actions, evildoers. God help us not to strengthen the hands of evildoers by supporting or promoting things that are done that are not of God. Or worse yet, supporting or promoting things that are contrary to God's word and to the spirit and the actions of true ministerial shepherds as defined by God's word. On a corporate note, if the ministry, who is sometimes typologically pictured as the hand of the Lord, in terms of its five offices that are like the five fingers of a hand, isn't fully healed and unbroken and undivided in our purpose, practice, judgment, order, operations, and every other critical component that we need to lead the body of Christ, we will end up being a broken-handed ministry as a whole. God forbid. And if we promote and push men up who are broken-handed, we will just perpetuate that condition corporately, even if we individually ourselves aren't broken-handed, and even if the vast majority of us aren't broken-handed, if we allow broken-handed work to continue to go on among us, and we not only support it, but we allow those who are broken-handed to hold positions of leadership and of influence among us, we won't just look guilty by association. We'll look exceptionally unwise to anyone that's observing us from the outside. If our means and methods and the actions and the attitudes that they produce are wrong, we have to correct them. If our ways are polluted, then our hands are going to be made unclean and thus will be broken-handed. We'll have the wrong ways that will always lead to the wrong actions and they'll never get the right end results.
But if we do keep our hands clean and unbroken, and if the Lord does give us more and more strength, we will receive some of the greatest blessings of God that any people could ever receive. Let me just give you two examples of that in the 33rd chapter of Deuteronomy as we close out. The seventh verse is the blessing that is given to the tribe of Judah. He said, Hear, Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him unto his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him, and be thou an help to him from his enemies. God, help our hands to be sufficient for the task you've called us to as ministers and as saints of God. Let our hands be strong enough to hold a vice grip on what is right and what must never be relinquished, but flexible enough to let go of that which we should never have taken hold of to begin with, and skilled and tender enough to lift up your people and assist in their care and in their development. Before I get to the next example, let me take a short aside to this 90th Psalm where Moses had a similar prayer. Down the 17th verse, he said, Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. God is never going to establish the work of our hands, brethren, if our hands are not clean and unbroken. But if our hands are sufficient, as Deuteronomy 33, 7 speaks of, and our labors are established by God, then we'll be able to fulfill the spiritual meaning of the blessing that was given a little later in that same chapter, in the 8th to the 11th verse, to Judai's brother Levi, the tribe of which would produce the priesthood, which I think is an appropriate way to end this class since it's a class to the ministry. Of Levi he said, Let thy Thummim and thy Urim be with thy Holy One, whom thou didst prove at Massa, and with whom thou didst strive at the waters of Meribah, who said unto his father and to his mother, I have not seen him, neither did he acknowledge his brethren, nor knew his own children. What's meant by that, by the way, is very similar to what Jesus said when he said, if you don't hate your family, he is not talking about you hating your family like you dislike them, but they had to let God be the first priority in their lives as God's ministry. It was on to say, they have observed thy word and kept thy covenant. They shall teach Jacob thy judgments and Israel thy law and shall put incense before thee and whole burnt sacrifice upon thine altar. Bless Lord his substance and accept the work of his hands. Smite through the loins of them that rise against him and them that hate him that they might rise not again. God in heaven help us to receive that blessing that God will bless the work of our hands because the work of our hands are clean and our hands are unbroken, and all that we're doing is an extension of the hand of God reaching through us as a ministry to to accomplish His purpose in this earth.